It's Friday, October the 21st, and this is your CE Advance Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and coming up, we've got Andrew Kenningham, our Chief Europe Economist, who'll be talking about the outlook there. But for now, I'm joined once again by Neil Shearing, our Group Chief Economist. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So UK markets seem to be a bit calmer at the end of this week. The the door at number 10 seems to have revolved again. And I guess that some restoration of sanity on Downing Street means we can get back to worrying about things like inflation at multi-decade highs, global recession, financial crisis risk, Vladimir Putin, climate change. So there's plenty to be getting on with. I'd like to talk about inflation, though. It seems globally there's been quite a few CPI releases coming in that all point to core inflation staying stubbornly high. Does this mark a new chapter in in the post-pandemic inflation story? Well, it's something that's been happening um, over a number of months now, which is to say that the initial surge in inflation around this time last year was all really about reopening effects on prices. So either prices of goods that have collapsed during the pandemic bouncing back or there being surges in demand for some goods and supply not being able to to keep up but we've really since the start of this year seen price pressures starting to broaden out and affect the service sector and in fact, core goods too. And really what we've seen in the course, over the course of the kind of September CPI releases is more of more of the same in that respect. And that's true, not just of the US, but if you look at the latest CPI re- releases in the UK and in the Eurozone, you get the same picture, which is to say, not just very high rates of headline inflation pushed up by food and energy, but also core inflation high and, and price pressures broadening out. So for example, if you look at the 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 eurozone cpi basket now more than four fifths of it is showing cpi rates of over two percent over the ecb's two percent target so really you know a really big problem for policymakers here the signs that price pressures are broadening out so does all that imply that central banks are going to have to stay hawkish for even longer than we'd been expecting well it certainly means whether they stay hawkish for longer than we've been expecting or whether they just continue with very aggressive interest rate hikes and get rates back to neutral or just above neutral faster i think is the question i suspect it's going to be the latter that's certainly the message that we've had from european policymakers over the past couple of weeks and we'll obviously hear more from the ecb uh, on third next thursday but it seems to be that the emphasis is now just get back to neutral perhaps just above neutral as quick as possible then reassess in Europe. So I suspect it's more about them continuing to go rapidly with the tightening rather than necessarily extending tightening cycles to last for, for a longer period of time. So that, you know, they get to the, the, the end destination, we get there, get there sooner. What about talk of a need for a period of below trend demand to try to, to purge inflation from the system? You know, you talk about the, the need to get back to neutral sooner and, and front loading rate hikes. Is that how core inflation will respond? I think there there are two two essential parts here. What's happening on the demand side and what's happening on the supply side. And there's been still huge there's still huge dislocation on the supply side of economies, particularly in labour markets. So in the UK, for example, the labour force has shrunk by about six hundred thousand since from, from pre-pandemic levels. In the eurozone, we've not seen such a large drop in participation, but we have seen hours worked look like they're perhaps structurally lower. And in the US, participation's rebounded for prime age workers, but not for, for workers over the age of 60, or 55 rather. So part of the answer to the question will be, how quickly does the supply side start to recover? And in particular, some of those workers that, that have left 
the labour market or are choosing to work fewer hours, either rejoin the labour market or or work longer hours. And that obviously takes some of the heat out to the labour market and out of wage pressures. That will then determine the extent to which central banks will need to bear down on demand. Now, the question you asked is whether or not we need a, a below trend growth period of, in, in demand. The answer is almost certainly yes. Uh, I think the real question is whether or not we can do all of this without having a recession. We had thought that because of this potential for a recovery and repair on the supply side of economies, that might help to mitigate the risk of recession. I think that's now looking less likely given the speed at which central banks are moving and the stubbornness of inflation pressures and the, the slow the slowness of the supply side to, to recover. So I think we're likely to see recessions across the major economies now, which of course will, will entail periods of contractions in demand, not just subtrend demand growth. That, that leads neatly into our global economic outlook, the, the quarterly report covering all major advanced and emerging economies. The report's coming next week. You've already alluded to it. The top line that our colleague Jenny McEwen explained a few weeks ago in a note is why we expect global recession in the coming quarters. I did speak to her a few weeks ago. At the time, she was talking mild recession. Has that story changed at all? I mean, how? what, is, what will this recession look like and, and how long do we think it's going to last? Well, I think the, the first point to get clear is the fact that if you look across the world's three major regions, by which I mean the US, the Eurozone and China, they're all entering significant downturns, but for different reasons. In the US, it's the effect of Fed policy. In Europe, and I'll write about this on Monday, it's it's about the effect of what the ECB is doing in terms of tightening policy, but also the huge shock to the region's terms of trade from higher energy prices. And in China, you've got a melting pot of zero COVID policy, property downturns, and a turn in the the global goods and demand for global goods, which is affecting Chinese exporters. So you've got different factors driving downturns in different parts of the world, and that will determine the extent to which the, the, the economies contract and, and the depth of the downturn. So in the US, for example, it is pretty mild. I think we have a peak to trough fall in GDP, something about 05 to 1%. Whereas in the UK, it's closer to 2%, and the same is true of, of the Eurozone. And in China, we've now cut our forecast to minus 1% this year. So an unprecedented contraction in the, the Chinese economy, at least compared with the history of the past kind of three, three or four decades. So different regions slow for, for different reasons. But in all three cases, particularly in Europe and China, it's going to feel very painful. I guess if there is any upside here, it's the idea that that, that these economic contractions that you're talking about will will take more price pressures out of out of activity. Will Will that leave central banks in terms of their willingness to start providing accommodative policy to help support economies that are struggling? Well, I don't think we're there yet. Everyone's obviously waiting for the Fed to pivot. I think the first signs of that will be, actually, I think at the moment, it's more a case of will they slow the pace of tightening from moving in 75 basis point steps to, say, 50 or more normal 25 basis point steps. Obviously, the RBA's got there already in terms of more conventional 25 basis point hikes. I don't think the Fed or the ECB are there quite yet, nor the Bank of England for that matter. So I, don't, I think it's too soon to talk of a pivot. The focus is going to remain squarely on getting inflation under control and bearing down on, on price pressures. I think that will start to change as we move through 2023, though. I think the world 
in 12 months time is going to look and feel very different to to what it does now. I suspect the underlying price pressures will have eased a fair bit. And I think that we'll be having central banks entertaining the possibility of loosening policy. I think the Fed will be the first to stop tightening. So I suspect it might be the first to start loosening. That could happen as soon as this time next year, perhaps at the very end of 2023, with the ECB and Bank of England perhaps following soon after. But yeah, well, that, that that's not on the cards in the immediate future. And I guess between now and then, we're looking at some, some pretty rocky economic times. Speaking of, can we talk briefly about housing as well? We've had lots of client questions about housing risk. And when we spoke last week, we were talking about the risk of a financial blow up as interest rates rise sharply. But we, we'd identified these overheated housing markets as a big vulnerability to the global economy, even before rates really began rising in this cycle. And I've just been going through some of our, our latest housing forecasts. So these, these are peak to trough falls. New Zealand, we have 25%. The US, I think we're forecasting an 8% peak to trough fall. The UK was saying that nominal prices could fall 12% from here. Uh, Australia, we've got 15% peak to, to trough fall. And, and Marcel Thieland, the head of our Australia service, says this is the largest wealth destruction in Australia's history that we're expecting. Uh, I mean, these are pretty big drops. and we published a report last week, uh, which was called, Will Property Be a Problem Again? And that was about the UK, but it's worth discussing globally, will property be a problem? Well, I think that is the question to be asking right now. We've outlined the reasons why we think there's a recession coming in the global economy. But if the recession is deeper and more painful than we anticipate, then I think it will be because the housing markets have experienced sharper downturns and that's infected the, the broader financial system. Now, there's reasons to think that why that might not happen, in particular, banks look in a much better place to withstand housing downturns these days, capital buffers in particular, are, are larger. But history is ominous in this respect. There's three or four instances in recent history of housing problems causing substantial recessions in the UK. And obviously we have the experience of the 2007 global financial crisis and important differences too with the situation back then, which is why we, we don't anticipate a repeat. Like I say, banks in particular are in a better, better place. So, so our, our sense really is that housing is an important part of this downturn and recession, but it's because housing activity is particularly weak. So you get sales down, starts down, construction activity down. There's some wealth destruction on the consumer side too that, that affects household spending. But it doesn't, we don't think, at least in our, our central scenario, infect the, the broader financial system such that you get a series of banking failures, counterparty confidence collapses, the financial system locks up. And you end up with a balance sheet recession of the order that we had, of the light that we had in 2007. We've talked a lot about the downside risks, and your note last week was entertained two of the, of the main down, downside risks, including that there is some kind of blow up in the financial system. What about upside risks here? We had uh, Ben Broadbent from the Bank of England saying that rates wouldn't have to rise as, as, as far as, as markets are pricing at the moment. Is there a suggestion that banks won't have to raise rates as aggressively as are being forecast that? Well, possibly. I. I mean, I think actually what the Broadbent speech showed last week was less that rates won't have to be raised as, as aggressively as we're forecasting, 
but more that they won't have to be raised as aggressively as the markets in the UK had been pricing. So don't forget that up until recently, uh, the, the, the rally in the market last week and to, before then, the, the, the market had been anticipating an increase in UK rates to 6% or higher. So uh, we, we'd said for a while that we thought that was overdone and that once you start to get beyond much beyond 5%, then you get real problems in particularly the housing markets. So I think what this really does is that the housing markets act as a kind of upper band, if you like, upper limit on how far central banks can really raise interest rates before something starts to break. Now, we don't know exactly where that lies. Monetary policy operates in shades of grey rather than black and white. But I, but I do think that it, the, the, the realisation that inflation's pressures are, you know, we're starting to cast our head, minds further down the road, look further down the pipeline. Price pressures are starting to come off some of the survey measures. Housing vulnerabilities are starting to come into sharper focus. I think that's just going to start to take out some of the, the more aggressive calls for, for very high interest rates are going to start to come out of the markets over the, the coming weeks and months. And I guess as housing markets turn more, that will also help take the steam out of inflation and, and reduce pressure on the central banks to have to respond. Exactly. To the extent the housing markets turn down, both that that has a direct effect on output in that sector, but also it's likely to dampen consumer spending, which dampens aggregate demand, which in turn dampens inflation. So, you know, it's all part of the effort to get on top of inflation. And actually, sent in a way, central banks are trying to engineer some some housing weakness. That's one of the most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. So they they they, they want to see this evidence that the housing markets are slowing and the housing activity is cooling. The trouble is they don't want to call it too far or too fast such that the, the whole system breaks. As Neil mentioned, we've got the ECB coming up next Thursday, and our Eurozone team will be holding a Tuesday online briefing on what to expect. They recently published their Q4 outlook, which highlights our forecast for a deep Eurozone recession next year. Earlier this week, I spoke to Andrew Kenningham, our chief economist for the Eurozone, about the report and started by asking why we've downgraded our view so much. Basically, there are three headwinds hitting the European economy at the moment, and all of them have got stronger. The first one is inflation, driven mainly by higher energy prices, which has consistently been higher than we'd expected in the past few months. Second one is tightening monetary policy and interest rates have risen further, particularly in the bond markets than we'd expected. And we've raised our forecast over the last few weeks for where the European Central Bank will get interest rates to. And then the third headwind is the weakness elsewhere in the economy. And as you know, we are now forecasting a global recession. So that's a much worse environment for the Eurozone to be operating in. There are recessions and there are recessions. How will this downturn compare to previous? Well, the Eurozone has only had three previous recessions. Of course, it's not had a very long history, having been formed in 1999. Two of those were pretty exceptional by any standard. So there was the global financial crisis, absolutely massive collapse, and then the pandemic downturn in 2020. So I don't think it will be as severe as either of those. The third recession to mention in the Eurozone's history is the Eurozone crisis back in 2010 to 2015 or so, where the recession wasn't so deep, but it went on for many years. And I think there are good reasons to hope that this recession won't last as long. But if you look further back into the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, recessions in um, European countries are often involved quite 
shallow reductions in output, like 1% of GDP or so. Uh, this one we think will be worse than that. It'll be perhaps two to 3% fall in GDP from peak to trough. That makes it a pretty serious recession, albeit not in the kind of mega recession category. So that, that, that compares unfavorably with, with the US and, and with the UK, I believe, based on our latest forecasts. The labor market has been quite tight coming out of the pandemic, as it has elsewhere. What will this recession do to that? And I know you've talked about inflation and, and rising interest rates. What will that mean in terms of, of wage growth? Yeah, well, that's arguably the most interesting feature of this recession is that the labor markets everywhere have been so strong. In Europe, the unemployment rate at six and a half percent in September is still at that all-time low, even though the economy is really weak. And that's a bit of a puzzle and seem to be quite a few things happening. Some reduction in the labor supply, it's part of it. But also, I think the economy still hasn't really got back to an equilibrium from the recovery. There's a lot of vacancies that haven't been filled. So absent this coming recession, I think you'd have seen the unemployment rate get to even lower levels. So I think well, that does mean that we can hope the unemployment rate won't rise as much as in previous recessions. So we've penciled in a sort of one and a half percent increase in the number of or the percentage of people unemployed from six and a half to nearly eight. There's a lot of guesswork there, but it would essentially mean it's going to be a recession which will feel very bad to people in terms of their incomes, It'll be much poorer, but hopefully won't mean mass unemployment. You've been talking as well about the, the the broadening of price pressures, the idea that the core inflation is is staying higher than perhaps we'd expected. If the labour market does ease slightly, if, if pressures do come off a bit, will that then seed into lower wage inflation? And eventually, I think it will help a bit. But we, we have been spending the last 10 to 20 years commenting on how weak the relationship has been between unemployment rates and inflation. This so-called Phillips curve, which seems to have been really flat. So that's been the case in the good times. That might be the case in the bad times as well. So I, 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 I'm rather concerned that wage growth will remain a bit too high for comfort. Not back to 1970s levels, and people will certainly be taking real wage cuts. But if wage growth picks up to 4 or 5% in Germany, for example, that is not consistent with bringing inflation back to 2%, which is what the central bank will look for. And that in turn means we might be in for quite a long period of high interest rates. That does bring us on to next week's meeting. You, I suppose, officially forecasting a 100 basis point move from the ECB on Thursday, but you acknowledge that it could be 75. Either way, it's going to be a, a chunky one, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's there have been consistent messages from policymakers they need more substantial rate hikes. And, and next week, I'd, I'd be very surprised if less than 75. We've actually penciled in or gone for a 100 basis points increase, even though no policymakers specifically mentioned that. So it is perhaps a bit of a long shot. But the last two meetings, the bank has done more than was expected. And I wouldn't be surprised if they, they get into the meeting, they sit around the table in Frankfurt, look at each other in the eyes, and they all have to acknowledge that their interest rates are way lower than they want them to be. I mean, it's only 0.75% interest rate, and inflation is 10%. So, you know, don't, you don't need a lot of complicated maths to work out that's really quite a low real interest rate. And there's a very strong case for shifting it upwards quickly. As long as they're not going to cause big problems in the markets, 
then why not just get on with it? And then they can assess later on how much further they need to rise. That's the bit which isn't certain, but for sure they need to get to two, two and a half percent. We're saying actually the peak is probably going to be three percent. Those sorts of fig numbers fully expected. So I would have thought they could press on quickly. And I suppose they're going to have to be calibrating policy as they go, because on the one hand, you have, as you say, that to keep the markets calm and keep bond spreads narrow enough. But at the same time, you're forecasting a deep downturn. And, and how do you tackle inflation coming from 0.75% um, policy rates without turning a, a, a deep recession into something worse? Yeah, exactly. But but as you say, they're going to essentially suck it and see. They're going to, you know, gradually raise rates and see what the consequences are. They admit themselves that they really don't know what would be a neutral rate. They don't know how powerful rates will prove to be at slowing the economy. There are a lot of unknowns. So that argues for being cautious and, and a gradual after they have got to the sort of minimum rate they think they need to get to. And how does monetary policy feed into fiscal policy? We've seen in the UK the, the dangers of fiscal policy not moving in coordination with monetary policy. Germany's announced a big plan to, to protect households, industry from, from rising energy costs. What are the implications there in terms of ECB and, and how it manages that policy? Well, yeah, I think the ECB would be pleased to see in government's taking a fairly cautious approach to fiscal policy. Everybody recognises you need a, a, a big package to help households in particular through this energy shock. And so that is not in question. But if there were any moves to the sorts of unfunded additional fiscal stimulus of the kind that was attempted in the UK unsuccessfully, that would definitely raise alarm bells in, in the ECB. For now, it has to be said that there hasn't been any sign of government's going down that line. And I think European governments are acutely aware that they, within the monetary union, they face a real budget constraint of a harder kind than you do in the UK. So, you know, for now, I don't think that's a really major risk, but it wouldn't be surprising if, if that issue came back to haunt us in, in, in Italy in particular, where we have a new untied, un, un, untried, untested government that potentially could pursue a more expansionary policy. That's it for this week. Don't forget you can find our Eurozone Outlook and all the research mentioned on this show on our website at capitaleconomics.com. Goodbye.